0: Chapter Seven Part Two of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter Seven The Lamp of Obedience. Part Two. Five. Neither originality, therefore, nor change good, though both may be, and this is commonly a most merciful and enthusiastic supposition with respect to either, are ever to be sought in themselves, or can ever be healthily obtained by any struggle or rebellion against common laws. We want neither the one nor the other. The forms of architecture already known are good enough for us, and for far better than any of us. And it will be time enough to think of changing them for better, when we can use them as they are. But there are some things which we not only want, but cannot do without, and which all the struggling and raving in the world, nay more, which all the real talent and resolution in England, will never enable us to do without. And these are obedience, unity, fellowship, and order." and all our schools of design and committees of tastes all our academies and lectures and journalism's and essays all the sacrifices which we are beginning to make all the truth which there is in our english nature all the power of our english will and the life of our english intellect will in this matter be as useless as efforts and emotions in a dream unless we are contented to submit architecture and all art like other things to english law six i say architecture and all art for i believe architecture must be the beginning of arts and that the others must follow her in their time and order and i think the prosperity of our schools of painting and sculpture in which no one will deny the life though many the health depends upon that of our architecture i think that all will languish until that takes the lead and this i do not think but i proclaim as confidently as i would assert the necessity for the safety of society of an understood and strongly administered legal government our architecture will languish and that in the very dust until the first principle of common sense be manfully obeyed and an universal system of form and workmanship be everywhere adopted and enforced it may be said that this is impossible it may be so I fear it is so. I have nothing to do with the possibility or impossibility of it. I simply know and assert the necessity of it. If it be impossible, English art is impossible. Give it up at once. You are wasting time and money and energy upon it. And though you exhaust centuries and treasuries and break hearts for it, you will never raise it above the merest dilettantism. Think not of it. It is a dangerous vanity, a mere gulf in which genius after genius will be swallowed up and it will not close. And so it will continue to be, unless the one bold and broad step be taken at the beginning. We shall not manufacture art out of pottery-imprinted stuffs. We shall not reason our art by our philosophy. We shall not stumble upon art by our experiments, nor create it by our fancies. I do not say that we can even build it out of brick and stone. But there is a chance for us in these, and there is none else. And that chance rests on the bare possibility of obtaining the consent both of architects and of the public to choose a style and to use it universally. 7. How surely its principles ought at first to be limited! we may easily determine by the consideration of the necessary modes of teaching any other branch of general knowledge. When we begin to teach children writing, we force them to absolute copyism, and require absolute accuracy in the formation of the letters. As they obtain command of the received modes of literal expression, we cannot prevent their falling into such variations as are consistent with their feeling, their circumstances, or their characters. So when a boy is first taught to write Latin, an authority is required of him for every expression he uses. As he becomes master of the language, he may take a license, and feel his right to do so without any authority, and yet write better Latin than when he borrowed every separate expression. In the same way, our architects would have to be taught to write the accepted style, we must first determine what buildings are to be considered Augustine in their authority. Their modes of construction and laws of proportion are to be studied with the most penetrating care. Then the different forms and uses of their decorations are to be classed and catalogued, as a German grammarian classes the powers of prepositions. And under this absolute, irrefragible authority we are to begin to work, admitting not so much as an alteration in the depth of a cavetto or the breadth of a fillet. Then, when our sight is once accustomed to the grammatical forms and arrangements, and our thoughts familiar with the expression of them all, when we can speak this dead language naturally, and apply it to whatever ideas we have to render, that is to say, to every practical purpose of life, then, and not till then, a license might be permitted, and individual authority allowed to change or to add to the received forms, always within certain limits. The decorations, especially, might be made subject of variable fancy, and enriched with ideas either original or taken from other schools, and thus in process of time and by a great national movement, it might come to pass that a new style should arise as language itself changes. We might perhaps come to speak Italian instead of Latin, or to speak modern instead of Old English, but this would be a matter of entire indifference, and a matter besides which no determination or desire could either hasten or prevent. That alone which it is in our power to obtain, and which it is our duty to desire, is an unanimous style of some kind, and such comprehension and practice of it as would enable us to adapt its features to the peculiar character of every several building, large or small, domestic, civil, or ecclesiastical. I have said that it was immaterial what style was adopted, so far as regards the room for originality which its development would admit. It is not so, however, when we take into consideration the far more important questions of the facility of adaptation to general purposes and of the sympathy with which this or that style would be popularly regarded. The choice of classical or gothic, again using the latter term in its broadest sense, may be questionable when it regards some single and considerable public building. But I cannot conceive it questionable for an instant when it regards modern uses in general. I cannot conceive any architect insane enough to project the vulgarization of Greek architecture. Neither can it be rationally questionable whether we should adopt early or late original or derivative Gothic. If the latter were chosen, it must be either some impotent and ugly degradation like our own Tudor, or else a style whose grammatical laws it would be nearly impossible to limit or arrange, like the French flamboyant. We are equally precluded from adopting styles essentially infantine or barbarous, However herculean their infancy or majestic their outlawry, such as our own Norman or the Lombard Romanesque. The choice would lie, I think, between four styles. One, the Pisan Romanesque. Two, the early Gothic of the Western Italian Republics, advanced as far and as fast as our art would enable us to the Gothic of Giotto. Three, the Venetian Gothic in its purest development. 4. The English earliest decorated. The most natural, perhaps the safest choice, would be of the last, well fenced from chance of again stiffening into the perpendicular, and perhaps enriched by some mingling of decorative elements from the exquisite decorated Gothic of France, of which, in such cases, it would be needful to accept some well-known examples, as the north door of Rouen, and the Church of St. Urbain at Troyes, for final and limiting authorities on the side of decoration. 8. It is almost impossible for us to conceive in our present state of doubt and ignorance the sudden dawn of intelligence and fancy, the rapidly increasing sense of power and facility, and in its proper sense of freedom, which such wholesome restraint would instantly cause throughout the whole circle of the arts, freed from the agitation and embarrassment of that liberty of choice which is the cause of half the discomforts of the world, freed from the accompanying necessity of studying all past, present, or even possible styles, and enabled by concentration of individual and cooperation of multitudinous energy to penetrate into the uttermost secrets of the adopted style, the architect would find his whole understanding enlarged his practical knowledge certain and ready to hand and his imagination playful and vigorous as a child's would be within a walled garden who would sit down and shudder if he were left free in a fenceless plain how many and how bright would be the results in every direction of interest not to the arts merely but to national happiness and virtue it would be as difficult to preconceive as it would seem extravagant to state but the first perhaps the least of them would be an increased sense of fellowship among ourselves a cementing of every patriotic bond of union a proud and happy recognition of our affection for and sympathy with each other and our willingness in all things to submit ourselves to every law that would advance the interest of the community a barrier also the best conceivable to the unhappy rivalry of the upper and middle classes, in houses, furniture, and establishments, and even a check to much of what is as vain as it is painful in the oppositions of religious parties respecting matters of ritual. These, I say, would be the first consequences. Economy increased tenfold as it would be by the simplicity of practice. Domestic comforts uninterfered with by the caprice and mistakes of architects ignorant of the capacities of the styles they use and all the symmetry and sightliness of our harmonized streets and public buildings are things of slighter account in the catalogue of benefits but it would be mere enthusiasm to endeavor to trace them farther i have suffered myself too long to indulge in the speculative statement of requirements which perhaps we have more immediate and more serious work than to supply and of feelings which it may be only contingently in our power to recover i should be unjustly thought unaware of the difficulty of what i have proposed or of the unimportance of the whole subject as compared with many which are brought home to our interests and fixed upon our consideration by the wild course of the present century. But of difficulty and of importance it is for others to judge. I have limited myself to the simple statement of what, if we desire, to have architecture, we must primarily endeavour to feel and do. But then it may not be desirable for us to have architecture at all. There are many who feel it to be so, many who sacrifice much to that end and I am sorry to see their energies wasted and their lives disquieted in vain. I have stated, therefore, the only ways in which that end is attainable, without venturing even to express an opinion as to its real desirableness. I have an opinion, and the zeal with which I have spoken may sometimes have betrayed it, but I hold to it with no confidence. I know too well THE UNDUE IMPORTANCE WHICH THE STUDY THAT EVERY MAN FOLLOWS MUST ASSUME IN HIS OWN EYES, TO TRUST MY OWN IMPRESSIONS OF THE DIGNITY OF THAT ARCHITECTURE. AND YET I THINK I CANNOT BE UTTERLY MISTAKEN IN REGARDING IT AS AT LEAST USEFUL IN THE SENSE OF A NATIONAL EMPLOYMENT. I AM CONFIRMED IN THIS IMPRESSION BY WHAT I SEE PASSING AMONG THE STATES OF EUROPE AT THIS INSTANT. ALL THE HORROR, DISTRESS, AND TUMULT WHICH OPPRESS THE FOREIGN NATIONS are traceable among the other secondary causes through which god is working out his will upon them to the simple one of their not having enough to do i am not blind to the distress among their operatives nor do i deny the nearer and visibly active causes of the movement the recklessness of villainy in the leaders of revolt the absence of common moral principle in the upper classes and of common courage and honesty in the heads of governments But these causes themselves are ultimately traceable to a deeper and simpler one. The recklessness of the demagogue, the immorality of the middle class, and the effemacy and treachery of the noble are traceable in all these nations to the commonest and most fruitful cause of calamity in households. Idleness. We think too much in our benevolent efforts more multiplied and more vain day by day of bettering men by giving them advice and instruction there are few who will take either the chief thing they need is occupation i do not mean work in the sense of bread i mean work in the sense of mental interest for those who either are placed above the necessity of labor for their bread or who will not work although they should There is a vast quantity of idle energy among European nations at this time which ought to go into handicrafts. There are multitudes of idle semi-gentlemen who ought to be shoemakers and carpenters. But since they will not be these so long as they can help it, the business of the philanthropist is to find them some other employment than disturbing governments. It is of no use to tell them they are fools and that they will only make themselves miserable in the end as well as others if they have nothing else to do they will do mischief and the man who will not work and who has no means of intellectual pleasure is as sure to become an instrument of evil as if he had sold himself bodily to satan i have myself seen enough of the daily life of the young educated men of france and italy to account for as it deserves the deepest national suffering and degradation and though for the most part our commerce and our natural habits of industry preserve us from a similar paralysis yet it would be wise to consider whether the forms of employment which we chiefly adopt or promote are as well calculated as they might be to improve and elevate us we have just spent for instance a hundred and fifty millions with which we have paid men for digging ground from one place and depositing it in another. We have formed a large class of men, the railway navvies, especially reckless, unmanageable, and dangerous. We have maintained besides, let us state the benefits as fairly as possible, a number of iron-founders in an unhealthy and painful employment. We have developed, this is at least good, a very large amount of mechanical ingenuity, and we have in fine attained the power of going fast from one place to another. Meantime, we have had no mental interest or concern ourselves in the operations we have set on foot, but have been left to the usual vanities and cares of our existence. Suppose, on the other hand, that we had employed the same sums in building beautiful houses and churches. We should have maintained the same number of men, not in driving wheelbarrows, but in a distinctly technical if not intellectual employment and those who were more intelligent among them would have been especially happy in that employment as having room in it for the development of their fancy and being directed by it to that observation of beauty which associated with the pursuit of natural science at present forms the enjoyment of many of the more intelligent manufacturing operatives of mechanical ingenuity there is i imagine at least as much required to build a cathedral as to cut a tunnel or contrive a locomotive we should therefore have developed as much science while the artistical element of intellect would have been added to the gain. in the meantime we should ourselves have been made happier and wiser by the interest we should have taken in the work with which we were personally concerned and when all was done instead of the very doubtful advantage of the power of going fast from place to place, we should have had the certain advantage of increased pleasure in stopping at home. 9. There are many other less capacious, but more constant channels of expenditure, quite as disputable in their beneficial tendency. And we are, perhaps, hardly enough in the habit of inquiring, with respect to any particular form of luxury, or any customary appliance of life, WHETHER THE KIND OF EMPLOYMENT IT GIVES TO THE OPERATIVE OR THE DEPENDENT BE AS HEALTHY AND FITTING AN EMPLOYMENT AS WE MIGHT OTHERWISE PROVIDE FOR HIM. IT IS NOT ENOUGH TO FIND MEN ABSOLUTE SUBSISTENCE. WE SHOULD THINK OF THE MANNER OF LIFE WHICH OUR DEMANDS NECESSITATE, AND ENDEAVOR AS FAR AS MAY BE TO MAKE ALL OUR NEEDS SUCH AS MAY IN THE SUPPLY OF THEM RAISE AS WELL AS FEED THE POOR it is far better to give work which is above the men than to educate the men to be above their work it may be doubted for instance whether the habits of luxury which necessitate a large train of men servants be a wholesome form of expenditure and more whether the pursuits which have a tendency to enlarge the class of the jockey and the groom be a philanthropic form of mental occupation so again Consider the large number of men whose lives are employed by civilized nations in cutting facets upon jewels. There is much dexterity of hand, patience, and ingenuity thus bestowed, which are simply burned out in the blaze of the tiara, without, so far as I see, bestowing any pleasure upon those who wear or who behold, at all compensatory for the loss of life and mental power which are involved in the employment of the workman he would be far more healthily and happily sustained by being set to carve stone. Certain qualities of his mind, for which there is no room in his present occupation, would develop themselves in the nobler, and I believe that most women would in the end prefer the pleasure of having built a church, or contributed to the adornment of a cathedral, to the pride of bearing a certain quantity of adamant on their foreheads. Ten. I could pursue this subject willingly, but I have some strange notions about it which it is perhaps wiser not loosely to set down. I content myself with finally reasserting what has been throughout the burden of the preceding pages, that whatever rank or whatever importance may be attributed or attached to their immediate subject, there is at least some value in the analogies with which its pursuit has presented us and some instruction in the frequent reference of its commonest necessities to the mighty laws in the sense and scope of which all men are builders whom every hour sees laying the stubble or the stone i have paused not once nor twice as i wrote and often have checked the course of what might otherwise have been importunate persuasion as the thought has crossed me how soon all architecture may be vain except that which is not made with hands. There is something ominous in the light which has enabled us to look back with disdain upon the ages among whose lovely vestiges we have been wandering. I could smile when I hear the hopeful exultation of many at the new reach of worldly science and vigor of worldly effort, as if we were again at the beginning of days. There is thunder on the horizon as well as dawn, The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. End of chapter seven, part two. Recording by Todd Albrick. End of the Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin.